sermon comes early on Sundays when we do communion. You know, we sing songs like that and, and it's right for us to look to Christ and know that He will hold us fast. And today's sermon is not necessarily about how much faith do you have. We, we talk too much about that anyway. If you have any real faith in the true Savior, that's all He asks. That's what He creates. That's what He works through. The question this morning is, do you have faith at all? And the reason we want to ask that question is, number one, the section of God's Word we're in asks that question. But if you've, I've, there, there are a lot of lost people in God's church. If you've been around, if you've been in the church, you know that that's true. Even the best of churches is a mixture of wheat and tares. I don't know anybody around me here this morning that I would say that is true of. But I can't see your heart. Right? But the, the scripture we're memorizing and the scripture we're going to look at this morning calls on us to ask that question because now is the time to answer it. Not when we stand before Him at the judgment. And we know from reading Romans that Paul's heart is bleeding for his brethren. The Jewish people. He's willing to sacrifice himself for their salvation. He wants them to come to faith. We'll see that in chapter 9, chapter 10 when we get there. And he grieves over the fact that their, their, their confidence is placed in the wrong place. In their identity or their heritage, in their uh, having the law, in their having circumcision, in their, their just physically being in the covenant people of the Old Testament, the Jews. But he knows that without true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that will avail them nothing. So we've been looking at uh, Romans and, and seeing Paul introduce himself, introduce his desire to preach the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he has told them what he's going to tell them. Remember the old thing, tell, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you've told them, that kind of thing. He's given his theme statement in verses 16 and 17 about the gospel that is the power of God. And he began at verse 18 and he will continue to chapter 3, verse 20. At first he established the sinfulness and need of the Gentiles. And now he's pivoted in chapter 2. He's pivoting toward the Jews. And we know we can look at the end of his argument and see where he's going. Jews and Greeks are all under sin. None are righteous, no, not one. They all need a Savior. And in our text today, he, this is the first time in this section that he explicit, explicitly uses the word Jew. And so read with me. We'll pick up in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter as we see Paul laying his gospel on the line and being willing to share the bad news with his Jewish brethren in hope that they will forsake dependence on their self and their own performance, their own privileges, and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for righteousness. But look in verse 17. It says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve of what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? When you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For one is, not a Jew, one is a Jew who is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, I guess the proper prayer for this section of Scripture is search me. Search us, know us, try us. See if there be any wicked way in us, Lord. Lord, those who have tender consciences can often be caused to doubt through sermons like this. But I pray that your spirit would be at work, that if true faith is there, that their confidence and faith would be strengthened. But those without true faith, if there be any in the room or overflows or outside or listening through the live stream or listening to a recording later, any who don't have faith, whether they know they don't have faith or whether they think they do, we pray that this would be a turning day. A day of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A day of casting aside all hope but in Jesus Christ. So empower me, help me to preach your word, Lord. Put your good hand upon me. Send forth your word. May it run and be glorified. And empower us to hear it, Father, as you graciously have your word come into our ears. May it penetrate to our hearts and both confirm faith and challenge unbelief. Lift high your Son. Build your church. We trust you for it. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Jane never knew a time when she did not believe in God. She was raised in a believing home. She was in church regularly. She loved teaching the children. Everyone around her looked up to her. She lived a long life, and then she died at a ripe old age, and she found herself standing before Jesus. And she suddenly felt nervous because things were not going as she had expected. Her secrets were being exposed. Her lack of love for the word and prayer in her own personal life. Her persistent habit of gossip, sometimes in the form of a prayer request. How she tended to look down on those who didn't measure up to her standard. Her religious resume was being ignored. So she began to plead, didn't I go to church? Didn't I sing in the choir? Didn't I teach the children, cook for those who needed a meal? Great fear was capturing her soul. Tom was a biker all his life. He was a rough guy. Tom lived hard and lived for the party. One day he was riding. And he was struck by a car. And while dying in the ditch, he remembered hearing the gospel from his grandmother. And he cried out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Today I want to talk to you from God's word about the subtle danger of hypocrisy. And this is not just for the Jews of Paul's day. We all need to hear this, especially since we live in a day when you'll have a very shallow gospel message go out and 48,000 verses of just as I am play. And people will walk down an aisle and be told to repeat a prayer 
and be assured that they're in because they have done that. Their life hasn't changed, but they've felt some emotion. And they've come down to a preacher who hasn't questioned the nature of their faith, but simply gotten them to repeat a prayer and assured them that they're Christians. That's an easy way to create false conversion. And one of the reasons we don't do altar calls, well, the church doesn't have an altar. That's been taken care of. And it's not in the Bible. A sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. There are sinners who prayed in the Bible and in various ways cried out to the Lord. But we preach the gospel and we exhort you to come to faith in Christ. And we know that as you do that and you pour out your heart to Christ, clinging to Him and looking to Him for salvation, that God has worked that and He will honor that and create true faith in your heart. See, Paul's giving a direct warning that is much needed in his day for the Jew as well as our day for us. Because hypocrisy is very subtle and very deceptive. See, just like the Jews were counting on the wrong things to make them right with God. And listen, not all Jews were doing all these things, okay? Just like not all people listening to me are false converts. There, there may be a few even sitting in here today. We're confident that that's not true of most. But they were counting on the wrong things to make them right with God. Their lineage, their privilege. And Paul is showing them that while those are good things, they're not saving things. That they need faith in the true and living Savior. I have a very simple main point for us today. In a lot of ways, a very simple message. But the main point is beware of hypocrisy. How do I do that? How do I beware? Beware of hypocrisy by first knowing its nature and then knowing its cure. Know its nature and know its cure. First, and the first point is our text. The second point is me just bringing other texts into the picture to help us know how to address the potential of hypocrisy in our own lives. But look in chapter 17. As we've seen, he's, he's turning his guns on the Jews and he showed them what the judgment, that it'll be according to works, it'll be according to his, God's own law, that it'll only be the doers of the law who are justified. Every, only those who have kept the law and thought word and deed will be declared righteous. We've seen there's only one who's done that, and that is Jesus. And he's continuing this line of argument to show the universal need of the gospel in Gentile and Jew, which he'll conclude with in in chapter 3. But he says, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve of what is excellent because you're instructed in the law, if you sure you are you that you yourself are the guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Notice that twice in, in verse 17, they were instructed out of the law. And, in, and then in verse 20, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. See, the problem is not in the law. The problem is in our own hearts. We'll see that in chapter 7 and other places in Romans as well. But the point to get from this is that the hypocrite professes faith. A hypocrite is one who professes faith. Right? A hypocrite professes faith in verses 17 to 20. And every one of these things in this list is paralleled in Jewish literature of Paul's time. So these would have been claims that they were making for themselves. There would have been what they're saying, what they're, they're doing. And I want to tell you, this, there's... This is not bad stuff that's in the list. Paul is getting their attention by using descriptions that they have used in their own literature and things they would have been familiar with. And he's saying, if you say this, then he's going to turn in a little bit. But look first, they're claiming religious heritage. In verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew... 
There's nothing wrong with that, right? They were born into the Jewish people. They were born into the Old Covenant community, the Covenant community in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God's people that He had chosen through which He would bring the Messiah and save His people, which are made up of Jew and Gentile. So we'll see as we move forward. But they're, they're calling themselves a Jew. And by calling themselves a Jew, they're saying, I'm in the covenant people. I'm one of God's people. And again, in, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with this, with claiming a religious heritage, if it is true. I, they call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law and boast in God. See, yes, if they're relying on the law for their method of righteousness, then they've fallen short there, right? But if they're relying on the law as the revelation of God and the instruction from God, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. They're saying, we are the Jews. I'm part of the Jewish people to whom God gave His law. And that was a gracious gift of God. And it says they boast in God. Now, y'all know that there's nothing wrong with boasting in God. That everyone who boasts, boasts in the Lord, not ourselves. But you see this, this is a profession of faith. This is a claim to have a covenant relationship with God. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, which He has given a good and gracious gift, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, Paul says, and you boast in God, okay, so far so good. Now he's going to continue in, in verse 19 to say that they even have biblical knowledge. So they make, they make a profession of faith. They embrace their religious heritage. They have biblical knowledge. It says, if you know His will and you approve of what is excellent because you're instructed in the law. You know His will because He's revealed His will to you in His Word. And either explicitly His will is revealed or through applying the principles of His Word, His will is revealed. No magic tricks to discerning God's will. He guides through His Word, through the counsel of others, you know, things like that. But He said, you know His moral will through His law. He's told you what He requires of you and you know it. And therefore, believing that Word, you approve of what is excellent. Obedience to God's commands would be excellent. Excellent behavior. Not to steal, not to lie, not to, you know, all. I won't go through the whole list for you this morning. But you're claiming to have a relationship with God. You're boasting in Him and His law. You know His will. You have biblical knowledge so that you really approve of what is excellent because you're instructed of His law. So you have a profession. You have biblical knowledge to such an extent that you claim to be a teacher of the truth. Look at this. If you're sure, again, these would have, when they would have seen these descriptions, they would, have, they would have thought, I've seen that before in Rabbi so-and-so's writings or over here in this writing. That you are sure that you yourself, that's emphasis there, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. And we know if you read your Old, Covenant, your Old Testament rightly that the Jews did have a responsibility under God to be a light to the nations around them. Now, they failed at that. But they did have that responsibility. But the, he's saying his audience, being, being of the Jewish people and relying on God's law and boasting in God, knowing His will through His given word, that they are then confident that they can teach others. A guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. Think primarily Gentiles would have been going through their mind. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So you're in with the covenant people. You have the Word of God and you know the Word of God. Enough of it to then pass that on to others. So see, these are not... I mean... If you want to use Christian lingo, their Bible wasn't sitting on the table with dust all over it. He's saying, you know God. You know who He is. You know His law. You're part of the covenant people. You're, you're convinced that you can even be a teacher of 
the truth. But there's a problem. There's a problem with your profession to know God. And that's what he's going to bring out in verses 21 and following because he uses a series of rhetorical questions to drive home a point. This is a, a, a technique for driving home a point. I used, to, I, have, I, I used to preach in a church where a fellow didn't know the difference between a rhetorical question and a real question. He was always answering them during sermons out loud. But the rhetorical question is not meant for you to give an answer, but for you to think about it, for you to ponder it, for you to get the point that that question is driving at you. He says, he says and remember, all of those things that we just talked about aren't necessarily bad. They would be good if they're true, right? That they really do know God and, and they are really in the covenant. They are filled with His Word and able to rightly lead others into the truth. Paul said, this is, these are, this is your profession. This is what you claim to be. And now I'm going to examine that claim a bit on the basis of the Word. So as he turns with these rhetorical questions, he's driving home a point. And watch what he says. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's such a problem with legalism. And hypocrisy, isn't it? A lot of times hypocrites are very bold. And they're dropping the list on those around them. In their condemnation of those who are not measuring up to their standards. I mean, we, you can see it in the Judas, Jewish leadership that opposed Jesus and the apostles. But I mean, we see it in our day. The church has a ton of sharp-tongued hypocrites who will lower the boom on everybody around them that don't seem to hear what they're saying themselves. See, that's what I'm saying. This is a subtle danger. You can get caught up in who you think you are and what you think you know, and you can even be thinking you're serving God, but giving yourself a pass. Because Paul's point he's driving home with these questions is, you don't practice what you preach. You do not practice what you preach. And he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And remember when Jesus applied all of these commands all the way down to our heart to such that if we're angry with, with our brother or sister without cause, we've committed murder. If we've looked upon lust, looked with lust upon another, we've committed adultery. One of the descriptions of the opponents of Jesus was eyes full of adultery. And you can see what commandments he's breaking out when he's talking about the law. Shall not steal. Shall not commit adultery. Shall not lie. Shall not covet. Back up to the first one. No other gods before me. Worship my way. Honor my name. Honor my day. He's saying you're good at preaching the law. But you stink at obeying it. But you don't see it. Because hypocrisy blinds. We look in the mirror of His Word and we think about all the other people that need to hear this. If you're sitting in sermons and thinking, oh, she needs to hear this, he needs to hear this. Apply it first here. Paul's saying, you, don't te you teach well, but you don't, you don't practice it. You, you steal. You commit adultery. You rob temples. And he's using exaggeration. And there's a lot of discussion about what he means by robbing temples. I mean, go, you can dig that. Go look at that and talk about it if you want to. Profiting from idolatry, participating in it. Right? One of the major claims of the Jews of that day, they truly abhorred idols in the form of the little statues. 
There wasn't any of those around. There were tons of heart idols running around, just like today. They don't practice what they teach, what they preach, what they believe, what they have in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They claim to be one of God's covenant people, but their life is showing them to be otherwise. See, our hearts are revealed in our lives, in the choices we make, in the words that we use, in the desires that we have. Paul's using these questions to try and hopefully show them that their lives don't match what they say. Therefore, they're making a false profession. And he diagnoses them quickly. Again, verse 23. You who boast in the law, you who boast in it, you rely on it, you love it, as God's revelation. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Your lips, you preach a good game, but your life demonstrates a different heart. See, the characteristic of the heart, and you said the stony heart in the Old Covenant, a stony heart is an unresponsive heart. It's a self-centered heart. It's a heart that doesn't respond rightly to God and, and His Word. It can talk about His Word. It can even proclaim His Word. I mean, it can preach His Word. There are preachers who don't know the Lord. And look at what he says. You never want this to be said of you. And he said it about Jews who are making all of these claims. He said, for as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, your claim to relationship with God, but living like one who is not a disciple of Christ, is blaspheming the God you can't claim to love and trust. What does it mean to blaspheme? We don't use words like that much anymore. It means to dishonor God verbally or with the life. You claim a relationship, but your life dishonors him. So what is a hypocrite? What is Paul trying to drive home to them? And he's going to talk about circumcision next, and we'll, we'll talk about that next time. But a hypocrite is one who claims a knowledge of the truth, but does not practice it. One who claims a knowledge of the truth but does not practice it. One who claims to know God but dishonors Him with their life. Beware of a fruitless familiarity with God. Of religion without relationship. Of profession without possession that walks itself out in obedience to God. Where does hypocrite come from? Where does the word hypocrite come from? Well, it comes from the Greek and from the plays, but hypocrites, the Greek word, meant an actor or a stage player. The word literally meant an actor or a stage player. And in that time during the plays, you might have an actor playing multiple roles. And the way that you would know what role he was playing would be what mask he held over his face. So if he's playing this role, he has this mask on. And then over here, he takes that one off and he puts another mask on. That was a hypocrite. An actor. A pretender. We might call him a poser. And that might be old language now. I don't have any idea what you kids call him. Be authentic. They wore masks to demonstrate what character they play. So a hypocrite, if you want a definition simply, is a person who acts in contradiction to their stated beliefs. That's what Paul, you can clearly see that's what Paul is accusing the Jews of. He's saying you're making a fine profession of faith. 
Oh, that it was true. But your life is characterized by disobedience to God's commands. And see, the actor in the Greek plays, they knew they were switching masks. Right? They knew, okay, I'm playing this character over here and this one over here. And the dangerous thing, the thing I'm sort of shaking you on this morning, a lot of times we don't know that we're playing a game or acting in a play and changing mess. Think about the verses we're memorizing. Those people are standing before the judgment seat of Christ and saying, didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do that for you? And didn't we do this for you? They went all the way to the judgment seat thinking they had a relationship, a saving relationship with Him, only to find out when they got there, they were switching masks. Okay, here's my Sunday mask or whatever. Where I'm a Christian. And I know my God. And I love Him and I love His people. And I'm willing to be bitten by His people and not retaliate. And you go on down the line. And then Monday comes and Better not mess with me. It's all about me. I go to church. I read my... See, a lot of us can't even say that. Some of us go to church when it's convenient, when nothing else is going on. Some of us don't even read our Bibles. We can't even say what he was accusing the Jews of saying, that they knew the law. They were able to teach it. It scares me when you don't have a love for God and His Word and prayer. Now, we're all inconsistent. I'm able to convict just with language, probably most of us, with the sermon this morning. But I want us to see that, does my sin grieve me? Am I pursuing righteousness? Do I love Jesus? And am I seeking in His strength to live for Him? Or am I just making a profession and doing some stuff when it really no reality to it? Beware of a fruitless familiarity with God. Does your life prove your profession? James said it this way, and James and Paul are perfectly in sync when you understand what they're saying. But notice what James says in chapter 1, and you all probably remember this verse. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you're just a hearer, maybe even a reader, but you really don't put it into practice, you have deceived yourself. And now is the right time to know that. Now is the right time to address that before you stand before God and have Him address it when it's too late. I'm trying not to knock all this new stuff down. (laughs) Remember what God said in the Old Testament. I'm going to let you go read this, but if you go read Ezekiel chapter 36 around verses 25 to 27, you'll see Him say what He's going to do in applying the new covenant and giving a new heart and a new spirit. And he, sa- he says that he's going to give a new heart and a new spirit to those who are truly converted and so that they will keep his statutes and his laws. And Paul is showing the Jews here that they don't do that, revealing they have a bad heart. So let me give you a summary. We need to move on. Hypocrites boast in a relationship with God. And there's nothing wrong with that if it's genuine. But hypocrites make a profession of faith. They even speak to others about God. You can see that in the text. Hypocrites, now watch this one. Hypocrites tend to think lightly of their own sin in comparison to others. Matthew 7, 1-5, hypocritical judgment. Is that kind of judgment. Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see to help your brother. Not don't, listen, that's the most, one of the most abused texts in the world. Do not judge, do not judge. Did you read the rest of the passage? He tells us how to judge. Don't, don't judge hypocritically, but with righteous judgment. Like a bunch of unschooled parrots. He says, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you can help your brother or sister with their speck. One of the things he's telling you is you need to see your sin as the log and theirs as the speck. 
You're the biggest problem in your life. Listen to me. As you struggle in your marriage, or with your children, or with your neighbor, or with your church person, you are the biggest problem in your life. That's how you should see it. Lest we be hypocritical in our appraisal of things. Hypocrites practice lawlessness and therefore dishonor God. He does not truly know God. He's lost. And, and without repentance and conversion, we'll see later in the book, they will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Please don't go there. Please don't go there. I really don't care if you get mad at me this morning. I'd rather you get mad than have no response. That was a good, job, a good sermon, preacher. And I mean, you don't even remember what I said when you get in the car. I'm not accusing you of that, but it does happen sometimes. But I really want you to hear me, and I really want you to think about this, and I really want you to prepare for the judgment before you get to it. This is scary and convicting, right? If it's not scary and convicting, you're not listening. We all have some inconsistencies in our lives. We all have some problems where we are saying one thing and doing another. But if we know Jesus, he's con the Spirit is convicting us about those things and we're grieving over them and seeking by His grace to change them. But He's saying these are a group of people being represented here. Again, not every Jew this is true of, but He's using this strong language to make a point. But He's saying that a hypocrites, they don't get it. They rest in their profession. They don't examine their lives and their lips. They don't look at their, how am I speaking to others? How am I acting with and around others? And is all of that glorifying to God? I'm really warning you this morning about a fake relationship with God that will look somewhat like the truth. Remember the wheat and the tares? They look exactly alike until the wheat comes out. So the fruit comes out. The fruit of reality. A fake relationship with God or a fruitless familiarity with God is evidenced by a lawless life. How can we make sure this doesn't happen to us? That's why I have a second point on this sermon. <laughs> Bringing in some other texts. I want to bring in some antidotes to hypocrisy. So point two is beware of hypocrisy by knowing its cure. And I want to give you four antidotes to hypocrisy. And these follow on the behind trusting Christ, right? So let me start there. The gospel is the antidote to hypocrisy. Christ lived for our righteousness. He died for our sins. He was raised from the grave. He's reigning now. And He calls on us, therefore, to repent and believe the truth. And repentance is a change of mind, change of heart that results in a change of action. So if I've truly come to know Jesus, my life changes and it looks different. It, it begins to growingly look like one who's following Christ now as I grow in grace. Not one who would just take Christ as a ticket out of heaven and still live like hell. So the first and fruit is Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised the third day. And it is through faith in Him and Him alone that one is converted and saved. Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone? Is it your profession this morning that you're in the covenant people and that your boast is in God and that you know His will through His Word? I'm going to say this one more time because it scares me to death. If you don't desire a prayer life and if you don't desire a word life where you're studying His Word and getting to know Him, that is a huge red flag in your life that you need to think about and take before the throne of grace and say, God, why does my heart not desire to know You? Because this is not a buffet situation. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
And if I don't desire truth, if I don't desire that milk, as Peter would say, that I might grow thereby, I have a heart problem. Please address it. And the reason I said that is because of my first antidote. After believing the gospel, you know, you're trusting in Jesus, you're making a profession of faith in Him. Here's four antidotes to hypocrisy. Number one, regular self-examination by the Word of God. And I'm going to pull all of these out of Hebrews. I did it on purpose. It gives me a chance again to tell you I think it's Paul's theology through the pen of Luke. But since it's Paul that's addressing the Hebrews in Romans, I thought I'd show some of the antidotes in the letter to the Hebrews. But the first one is regular self-examination by the Word. Do you say, Lord, search me and try me and know me and then not just wait around on feelings but you're all you're in this book because that's what the Spirit's going to work through and search you with. So regular. Look at what he says in Hebrews 4.12. This is why I'm saying self-examination by the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. He doesn't work without the Word, around the Word. The Holy Spirit works through the Holy Bible to make a holy people by bringing them to faith in Jesus and growing them in grace. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, search my heart. If I am a hypocrite, deliver me from that. If I know You, show me that. Search my heart. You want a really good place to go to take a self-exam? And it's pretty short, 1 John. That whole book was written. See, in our current easy believism culture, we rip chapter 5, verse 13 out of the book and say, see, if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's abusing of the Word of God. The whole book was written that you might read it and examine your life in light of it and therefore see the fruit of the Spirit in your life that He's at work and then know that you have a true faith. Regular self-examination by the Word. God will show you if you ask Him whether or not you know Him. And if you'll read a book like 1 John asking that question, He will answer you. So regular self-examination by the Word. Secondly, we sing this. Cling to Christ and regular confession of sin. How often are you grieved by your sin and before the Lord confessing it? Because that's what the Spirit does as He grows us. He convicts us of our sin so that we'll confess it. Right? Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, stop. The old covenant priest could only pass through the veil of the the brick and mortar building of the temple. Jesus has passed through the heavens all the way into the throne of God to make intercession for His people. We have a successful high priest who has lived for us and died for us and been raised and passed through the heavens and is on the throne reigning. Since that's true, He's Jesus, the Son of God. Now what is the outflow? Look, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as are we, yet without sin. Let us then, or therefore, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Run to the throne of grace. Confess your sin before the Lord. Cry out to Him for strength that you might walk more faithfully with this high priest of yours who has passed through the heavens for you. So regular self-examination by the Word. A conscious clinging to Christ. That's application of the gospel and confession of sin. What did John say in 1 John? You'll see that if you read it. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we've lied and do not practice the truth. We've deceived ourselves. So cling to Christ and confess your sin. Number three, make good use of the, public, of the means of grace, both public and private. Prayer and the Word. Be sure your soul is being fed. 
And I'm giving you a negative example from Hebrews because Paul is going to criticize them for not partaking like they should. The reason they were struggling in the midst of their trials and thinking about chunking the faith is because they were focused on themselves and how good they thought it used to be instead of knowing God and His Word so that they were prepared to walk through the trials of life. Christianity is not about how to get out of the troubles of life. It's about how to walk through them faithfully and grow in grace. Look at this. He, he has to give a little correction here. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone again to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. That would be pretty offensive if somebody came up to you and said, here, and you need to put this Bible in this uh, Bottle, baby bottle in your mouth instead of this steak because you are immature. He said, you need solid milk and not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, is a babe, is immature in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food, the meat of the word is for the mature and those who have by, by their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Constant practice. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So your life as a follower of Christ in your home is to be one of word saturation and communion with Him. And then especially on His day, we gather as His people. And it should be a time of word saturation and communion with Christ. So you want an antidote to hypocrisy? Self-examination by the Word. Clinging to Christ in confession of sin. Making use to the means of grace that He's given you. And here's the last one. I appreciate I was Dr. Piper preached on this and he brought this one out as well. Here's the last antidote for community. Embrace, I mean, for, for hypocrisy. Embrace true community. We need each other to walk faithfully with Christ. And I'm not just talking about hang out with people. You can be with people on Sunday morning and not be in community. Look around you. You need every one of these people. You don't need just your particular group of these people. You need every one of these people in your life so that you can walk faithfully with Christ. You need those you wouldn't naturally hang out with as well as those whom you naturally would. You need to be thrusting yourself into community and not just isolating yourself with your particular group or with no group. A lot of us come in on Sunday morning, don't really commune with anybody or Christ and leave and then just do it again next week. Christianity is about life and community. And I'm taking this from Hebrews 2. Look in 3.12 to 13. Now watch this. Paul is warning them as well. Take care, brothers or brethren. This means whole church, men, women, boys, and girls. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what, how would you have us to take care, Paul? Look what he says in the very next word. But exhort one another every day. Catch that. Exhort one another every Sunday. No, this is daily life together. They were in the temple daily in, in Acts, right? Exhort one another every day, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So exhorting one another, encouraging one another. I didn't skip down, hadn't I? Sorry. Exhort one another every day. This is verse 13. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See that kind of antidote there in verse 12 and 13? Watch out for an unbelieving heart. How, Paul? By exhorting one another, living life in community. And, and that way, as you're living life in community and you're exhorting one another, then that's one of the antidotes so that he says in the end of verse 13 that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of hypocrisy, the trap that is, I assure you, is laid for you. It's not if the trap is laid. It is laid, and it is laid in your heart. You better beware and fight against it. 
Here's the verse I bled down into a minute ago in verse 10, chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Now watch this. Again, let us hold fast a confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How do we do that? Remember, life in community. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Notice the responsibility of each of us to each other. Let us be thinking about and purposing. How can I go in this morning when I'm going to be with God's people? How can I encourage them and stir them up to love and good deeds? Number one, if you absent yourself, you're a discouragement, unless there's a good providential reason for that, right? But when we're together, we're just our presence in worship encourages one another. But then this is another level where we're coming conscious. I'm going to glorify my God and worship Him, and I'm going to benefit and bless my brothers and sisters no matter how I feel. But if we're all doing that, see, we're giving encouragement and getting it. We're giving exhortation and getting it. We are considering stirring others up and others are stirring us up. It's the old illustration of a fire and a chart of individual coals in a fire. And a pastor had a congregant who was not coming to worship and he went to visit with him. Right? And so he went into his house to visit with him and they were sitting in front of the fire. They hadn't said a word. The preacher took the tongs, reached into the fire, took a coal and sat it on the, the brick in front of the fireplace. What happened to that coal? It started to go out. It was red and it starts to go white and ashy and go out. After a second, he took the tongs and reached and got that coal and put it back in the fire. And it flamed again. He never said a word. He got up and left. And that man got the message. We're not designed, lone rangers or dead rangers, we're not designed to do this on our own. We're not designed to sit in our home. If some of you are watching the live stream, and uh, it's a second, it's a substitute. You can't replace this. I, I'm glad that you're there. But don't do that because it's easier. Don't do that because it makes the rest of your day easier to be your day instead of the Lord's day. Stir yourself up. Come to worship. Even if you sit outside. You're pretty much safe to sit outside and worship together if you're worried about the virus. Some of you need to think on these things and come back. Some of you must be at home, and this is a benefit and a blessing to you, and I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm glad it's there. But we need to be together so that we can stir one another up to love and good work, so that we can exhort and encourage one another and help one another walk by faith. Verse 25, not, meeting, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we need to be speaking, living with one another in just our presence and our, 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 our faith. You ever, you ever met somebody and, and you didn't know who they were, but you kind of had a feeling they were a Christian and you spent time together, you found out that they were. But just your fellowship, that fellowship encouraged you. That's what we're supposed to be about. We're to exhort one another. We're to encourage one another. Sometimes we need to confront one another. That's part of Matthew 18. Go read it. If somebody offends you and you don't go to them and let them know, you're sinning. If you talk to somebody else about it, there you go. So we need to be willing to approach one another and say, I didn't understand this thing that you said or did. Or, I was offended by this thing you said or did. Or, yes, I just want to encourage you. You look down or all of those things. But be willing and intentional to encourage one another. Be willing and prayerful to confront one another. And listen to me. Be willing and gracious to be confronted. Even when it's done poorly. And guys, if you're going to pastor God's church, learn to receive things that are done poorly. Not retaliate. Be able to say, you know, this really would hack me off, but there's some good in it, and there's probably some truth in it. I need to examine it. Maybe they did it the wrong way. But there's some truth here. I need to think about that. Lord, what is true about what they're saying? Be gracious when confronted, even if it's done purely, uh, impurely. If there's a pattern of people that have confronted you about various things, there's a fire there. There's something there. 
Take it to the Lord. Lord, what is true about what my brothers and sisters are seeing in my life? Because it's loving of God to have people come around you and say, one of them or two of them or however many of them, and say, I was offended by this. This is real Christianity, by the way. The rest of it is fake when this is not going on. Go to, go to Osteen's meetings and enjoy having sunshine blown up your skirt and end up before the Lord saying, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? If you want to. When repentance of sin and, and wrath and things like that are not being preached, why did I go down that tree this morning or down that path? But anyway, it's true. Somebody need to hear that. Be gracious when you're confronted. Be intentional to encourage. Seek the truth in it. If more than one people, person confronts you, there's something there that you need to take note of. Remember, look at me, hypocrisy is fueled by pride, presumption, and self-justification. Our hearts are deceitful beyond measure. Look to the Lord. Truly, Trust in Jesus and be part of the covenant people. Truly boast in God. Truly know His will from His Word. Much for us to learn even as Christians as walking more faithfully with Christ. I'll finish those stories I started with and we'll move on to communion. Sadly, Jane would hear those words from the Lord she thought she knew. Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. They're gonna, Jesus said many when He described those people in chapter 7 of Matthew. Many will be like her on judgment day. Please don't be that. Please don't follow her example. Ask God to search your heart. Truly repent and trust Christ or grow in that repentance and trust of Christ and love for one another if you know Him. Tom, on the other hand, though he'd lived a wicked life and died in that ditch, by God's grace, he cried out to Jesus. And what he heard from Jesus was enter into the joy of your Lord. Much like the thief on the cross. What will you hear from Jesus when you stand before him? Because you will. What will you plead before Jesus? Think about this deeply before we move on to communion. And after you leave here, don't let this sermon sort of shed off of you as you walk out the door. Because we all want to be true followers of Jesus and not the kind of hypocrisy that Paul is having to address in this text. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, search us and try us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord. Lord, we all have inconsistency in our lives and a message like this causes us to hopefully to grieve over it, to, to worry about it, to want to be free from it. Lord, if, if we're hating our sin and seeking to be free from it, it's because you are sanctifying us and you are sanctifying us because you have justified us and we have a relationship with you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day. And we have forgiveness through faith. Even a weak faith in Christ. And we have a righteous robe on us that is Christ's righteousness. If we've truly trusted in him. But Lord, there may be those listening to this message who... Make a profession, but their lives don't back it up. Only you can show them that. But I pray that if there be any like that, that you would grant them the humility to come before your throne of grace in great grief and turn to you in repentance and faith. Lord, deliver everyone listening to me from the subtle danger and deceit of hypocrisy to true faith 
and love for and living to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn toward communion now, we just pray that you would, as the, you would fortify our faith, that you would strengthen us as we remember that Christ, you loved us first. You came to save those who were your enemies. You died for our sin, not yours. You took the wrath due us, not just a simple physical death, as horrifying as that was on that cross. But you drank the cup of wrath due your people dry. And because you are God and man, you drank it dry on that cross. And you said, it is finished. So as we partake of this meal, may we see your broken body, not just in general, but for us in particular. May we see your shed blood, not just in general, but for us. May we believe that the brokenness we deserved, you took. And may we believe that all of our sins are washed away through your sacrifice. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of Jews who by your grace trust you and Gentiles who by your grace trust you. So help us to rightly observe the Lord's Supper today. Help us to greatly discern the body, your body broken for us, creating a body that is unified in you as we partake together of your meal. Lord, I pray for our children, any who don't know you, that you would bring them to faith, that they could be baptized and come to the table. I pray for our adults, if there are any that don't know you, Maybe they're visiting and they don't know you or they've been here for years and they don't know you. I pray for a true work of conversion, of repentance and faith. And I pray for the rest of us who do know you, but maybe we're backslidden, that you would bring us, renew us, revive us, refresh us. And those of us who, who, who know you, maybe that's not the case of us, Lord. We all are not glorified yet and we don't, we're not fully like Jesus. So work in us that we might grow in grace even through partaking of this meal. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing yourself for us because we could not fix it. We could not save ourselves. So build your church. Purify your church. Save and sanctify your church. Build your church as we look to you, our only Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.